Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 35 of Conversations with Kenyatta. Today's guest is Naya Bates. She's a PhD candidate in history at Princeton University and part of the African-American Studies Department and the former director of the Getting Word Project at Monticello. Naya, welcome to Conversations with Kenyatta. I am excited to have you here. We've seen each other, been in each other's company in Virginia a lot, <laughs> usually at UVA. I just, I want to learn so much more about your work. I'm very intrigued. But I want to start first with sort of uh, the first time I ever asked this question, uh, what is your favorite childhood memory? Because I feel like you probably had fun as a kid for some reason. You seem like that type of person. So, <laughs> Man, I'm glad you think I'm a fun person. Um, I'm definitely a Virginia girl. And so I come from a very large family, one of those typical Southern Black families, right? Uh, mm. I'm an only child. But ah. uh, both of my parents come from very large families. My dad is one of 15. And my mom is one of a lot. You know, we don't we don't know a number there, but there are a lot of them. Uh, so I would say one of my favorite childhood memories is just uh, getting together with my mom's side of the family in particular on holidays. Uh, we used to go to my Nana and Pop Pop's house, which were my mom's parents. And mm -hmm. they had a swimming pool in the backyard. I mean, they just had this place that was uh, the ultimate family gathering spot. So my favorite childhood memories uh, circulate around that pool. I used to bring this big shark-shaped float every summer uh, to play in the pool with my cousins. Uh, so I've got a vivid memory of being in Orange County, Virginia, uh, in the middle of a field with my cousins at a pool with a shark float. <laughs> and one of my younger cousins who, uh, she was maybe two or three at the time, uh, didn't know how to swim went running full speed to get on that shark and she leapt off the side of the pool uh, onto the shark. And I think 15 different adults came flying uh, out of everywhere. My, my mom's brother, my dad, my uncles, my cousins, they're all running to save the baby. Uh, and miraculously she could swim. <laughs> I mean, none of us expected it to happen. She overshot the shark, uh, landed in the pool and was swimming just fine by herself. Uh, so everyone panicked around that moment, but uh, it just strikes me as, Kind of the ultimate example of how my family has always been very close knit, uh, everyone supporting everybody, and always gathering around uh, whatever family place is there. So uh, that's one of my favorite. I love that childhood memory. I am also an only child, so maybe that's why we bonded. I do have a half sister that's twenty six, but I grew up an only child, so most of my childhood was just you know me, my mom, and uh, Vaughn, my stepfather, and of course my dad was in my life as well. But that you know being an only child is a is an interesting thing. You know you kind of have to learn how to make friends, I think. But since you came from such a large family, did that really spark your interest in genealogy? I mean, is it because your dad's one of 15 and your mom's one of whatever number it is? Is that how you got interested um, in finding out your family history? 
Yeah, absolutely. I used to spend a lot of time with my dad's parents. They were my babysitters. And so uh, they lived in Albemarle County. And I just, the house that I'm in actually is their house. So what you see behind me, uh, which our Mm. viewers or listeners won't see, uh, the house behind me is my grandparents' house. My grandfather built this place in 1934. And I grew up listening to my grandmother tell stories about the community. She would walk me down the gravel road. We would walk to her school that she attended, which was a Tuskegee Rosenwald school, um, which for anyone who doesn't know, Tuskegee Rosenwald schools were uh, part of a partnership between Booker T. Washington, Tuskegee University, and Julius Rosenwald to provide schools all across the American South for African Americans. Uh, And so I grew up hearing stories about uh, my grandmother walking to school, about Uh, lighting the fireplaces in that building, uh, about what it took and what it was like, um, you know, in a very rural place during the Jim Crow era of segregation. Um, My my grandparents were much older. Um, You know, I did mention the big family part. My grandfather was born in uh, 1906 and my grandmother was born in 1927. And so I just grew up hearing all these stories about Uh, a world that I never experienced, but was very real for my grandparents. And then we had family photos of different aunts and uncles and grandparents. We had an old family Bible that had a list of births and marriages. Uh, And and my grandma was very uh, forthcoming and sharing that information with me. And so I think in some ways I was selected to be a historian. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I really think my grandmother chose me. Uh, I was the youngest grandchild. I spent a lot of time here. Uh, not that my cousins didn't, but as the baby, you kind of get more attention than anybody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I really think she chose me to be the family historian. And so my interest in genealogy really started because uh, my grandmother was very clear in sharing about who she was and about where our family came from uh, and making sure that I had those stories. I think that's cool because a lot of times, especially as as the baby of the family, right? Um, and you know, I think when it comes to history or family history and stories, because they grew up in Jim Crow and segregation, a lot of times those stories aren't shared, and they want to keep the past in the past. So I think that's really cool that your grandmother kind of, as you said, selected you uh, to be yeah, sort of the historian. <laughs> yes, yes, sounds like it, which I love. I love. Um, So I want to ask you about the Getting Word Project. So what exactly is that project at Monticello? And then why is it important uh, for descendants and for the community in uh, Greater Charlottesville? The Getting Word Project at Monticello is so special. Uh, And I'm very thankful and grateful that I had the opportunity to work with descendants of the families who were enslaved at Monticello for the time that I was director of the Getting Word Project. Uh, Mm -hmm. The project itself was started in 1993 by Cinder Stanton, um, who is a historian. She worked for the bulk of her career at Monticello, uh, transcribing Thomas Jefferson's records. So she was going through the farm book and the garden book, uh, where there was a lot of information about the enslaved community. Uh, In many ways, one of the best document. I don't want to say it's the best, um, but it is a very well-documented plantation. And so her career spanned a period of 40 or 50 years, you know, examining these records very closely, retrieving the names of the enslaved communities, uh, and then from the uh, early 90s forward, working with the descendant community. So the Getting Word Project uh, arose out of a need for Monticello to locate different sources of information about the enslaved community. Thomas Jefferson 
kept really copious records about the plantation. So we had uh, some information like uh, nuclear families, uh, occupations of enslaved people. Uh, we knew some surnames. Uh, mm-hmm. We knew about uh, where enslaved people were moving throughout Thomas Jefferson's land holdings. So we knew if someone moved from Shadwell to Tufton to Monticello to Poplar Forest and so on and so forth. Uh, but w- what was really missing uh, from that story were the lived experiences, uh, the interior mm-hmm. lives of those enslaved people. So in many ways, yeah, we had a lot of information, but we only had names. Uh, we only had mm-hmm. occupations. And uh, you can't reduce a human experience to a job and a name and an occupation. That's not enough mm-hmm. to go on. And so I really credit Monticello with starting the Getting Word Project uh, as an initial effort uh, to recover information that's not in uh, traditional archival sources. Uh, the goal with the Oral History Project was to seek out direct descendants of those people enslaved by Thomas Jefferson and to record uh, those oral histories to see if descendants um, retained any knowledge about the lives of their enslaved ancestors. And so um, it's been, this is going to reveal how terrible I am at math. <laughs> um, <laughs> So it's 2022. So, you know, we're, we're almost, we're coming up on 30 years, actually. Uh, the 30th anniversary of the Getting Word Oral History Project. Uh, so for all of that time now, Monticello has been reaching out to these descendant families and recording oral histories. Uh, we've done over 200 interviews with direct descendants of people who were enslaved at Monticello, either by Thomas Jefferson or by other slaveholders on the property. As we know, Monticello remained a plantation well after Jefferson's death in 1826. And so uh, while that's an important focal point of the project, uh, we've also learned so much more about the lives of these families and freedom uh, after they were enslaved at Monticello. Uh, So it's a really rich oral history archive. I think it's tremendously underutilized in that Mm. I don't think many people know that they can come to Monticello and find such a rich archive on Black freedom and Black life, Black history, Black culture uh, in Virginia, but also in other parts of the country. I mean, these families go to Alabama, they go to California, they go to Ohio, they are all over the United States. Uh, They're in Liberia. So it's actually a global uh, Black history, oral history project. And so... um, the Getting Word Project is so special uh, just for that reason, because these families uh, really have been very generous in sharing what they know uh, and sharing their family stories with us. And so I've been to Monticello probably five or six times. Um, you know, how would I get access to this information? If I were if someone listening was saying, I'm going to Monticello, I want to, you know, learn more about the Getting Word Project. I mean, would they show up and just say, show me to the archives? Like, how do they actually access this uh, resource? You could do that. You absolutely could show up at Monticello and say, show me to the archives, right? And someone there would direct you to go to the Jefferson Library, which is available and open by appointment. So you you would have to make an appointment to come uh, see the Getting Word archive. Uh, But much of it is available online. You can go to www.monticello.org forward slash getting word project uh, mm-hmm. and find many of those oral histories. We have lots of uh, audio snippets from the interviews. We have some photos that we've collected from descended families and we have some short interpretive uh, narratives that are there as well. So you can follow kind of the through lines of each of these families um, uh, from the website. There's also an app, the slavery at Monticello app. 
available mm-hmm. in Android and the Apple app stores. Uh, that is in some places narrated by descendants. Uh, so for instance, descendants of Burl Colbert who, uh, mm-hmm. and Brown Colbert, who were enslaved men at Monticello, um, one of their descendants narrates part of uh, the history of Mulberry Row. Uh, so I always think it's very po- powerful to hear descendants share these stories. So I encourage everyone to download that app. You can use it anywhere, although it's also geotagged. So if you're at Monticello, uh, you could pull up specific uh, history based on where you are on the property. Um, but you can look at it from anywhere in the world. And lots of school students do, a lot of virtual field trips do. Uh, so I encourage people to get the app. And then lastly, if you're at Monticello, uh, we have an exhibition installed on the mountaintop uh, next door to a quarter that we believe Sally Hemings uh, inhabited for a brief amount of time with some of her younger children. Uh, And so you could go to that space and see some of the stories that are interpreted there. And we're always looking uh, to expand that interpretation, or I should say Monticello is always looking to expand that interpretation. Yeah. And that gets into my next question, because I've seen, you know, I've been there, seen that um, the space where Sally Hemings, um, you know, possibly lived with her younger children. Um, And there've been a lot of changes since the first time that I went to Monticello. So what do you think, in in your opinion, having worked there and been a part of the Getting Work Project, sort of what have they done to acknowledge slavery? Because they've done a little bit more um, than they did before, right? In, In the sense of, you know, the space dedicated to Sally Hemings, and then also talking about her brother, I believe, as well. Um, but what else have they done or should they do to acknowledge the enslaved that uh, that lived in Monticello? You know, I think for at least the past three decades, Monticello has been a leader in the field in interpreting slavery. I think if you look at other historic sites across the South, especially house museums, um, Monticello has been a leader in that conversation. First, adding uh, plantation community tours, which were guided walking tours around the Monticello plantation uh, that populated the space with the stories of enslaved people and allowed visitors to learn about things like basket weaving, uh, the craft skills among the enslaved community, learning a bit about the architecture and the space of Mulberry Row. Um, But again, uh, you've you've been to Monticello, right? Uh, Yeah. It's really pretty. It's really stinking pretty. And it is very hard to tell this history, a history that is often uh, characterized by pain and violence and very heavy topics like family separation, of uh, sale of enslaved people, of Mm -hmm. brutality, of exploitation, um, whether that is in work lives or personal lives, right? And so I think what Monticello has most recently started to identify is the dissonance between going to this very beautiful scenic mountaintop that in many ways is removed from the work and the environment that would have been there during slavery, um, where you can't see enslaved people. Um, Mm -hmm. And and they're trying to bridge the gap for visitors. And and so that means restoring more of the buildings along Mulberry Row. I mean, since 2016, uh, they've restored uh, a log slave quarter Um, That was associated with John and Priscilla Hemings, Uh, John Hemings being uh, one of the head enslaved carpenters at Monticello, someone who was extremely skilled, Um, Priscilla being the head nursemaid. uh, They -hmm. were a couple and they lived in a place of prominence within the enslaved community. So we've restored that quarter. Um, We've also uh, restored a textile factory where uh, young girls 
between the ages of 11 and 16 uh, were responsible for making clothing um, for the enslaved people. So that's been restored. And then there's also been a restored uh, blacksmith space uh, that we know was associated with uh, Isaac Granger, um, who, of Mm. course, is uh, known for having one of the most iconic photos uh, of an enslaved person. And so uh, I think restoring the spaces is a major step and allowing visitors to walk back into that landscape of slavery and to see it as a plantation and not to see Monticello as a separate standalone architectural icon that is divorced from a history of slavery, because I think that would be a disservice, right? So I would say for the last 30 years, involving descendants in that story uh, has been one of the most major changes. So since the advent of the Getting Word Project in 1993, Then, of course, with subsequent gatherings of the descendants of the enslaved communities um, who have come back to Monticello and started to really reclaim the space as their own, uh, that has been a very powerful shift as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Descendants are now part of advisory committees at Monticello. They are part of the oral history project. Their stories are told and they are frequently uh, at Monticello themselves, uh, some on staff even. Um, Yeah. So I think in in that respect, Monticello has come a long way. I mean, I can remember days in my childhood. Now, Charlottesville is my hometown. <laughs> and I grew up taking field trips to Monticello. Uh, I can remember days where you would ask a tour guide a question like, who is Sally Hemings? And they might respond with, we don't talk about that. Um, so right. we, we have come a tremendously long way. Um, but that does not mean there is not a long way to go still. Right. Um, you know, right now in the world that we're living in and the society that we're living in, I think um, Monticello is best served by leaning into conversations that aren't ha- happening uh, elsewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Many people mm-hmm. are self-selecting where they have difficult conversations. You can be on Twitter and never encounter someone with an opposing opinion. You can choose to be in scholarly circles where you don't have to engage people who disagree with you. You can choose to do all of those things, uh, except for when you come to Monticello and purchase a tour ticket. You don't get to choose who's on the tour with you. You don't get to choose the terms of the conversation. And you certainly don't get to choose the material that is discussed. And so I think uh, Monticello and other historic sites like it in the future have to lean into these conversations that are challenging and uncomfortable, but necessary uh, for Mm -hmm. Americans to continue to have a democracy that functions. I think we are in dangerous territory, (laughs) if I can say that. And I think we need to have more spaces where people are having civil conversations about our past, uh, about democracy, and about what it means to be a citizen of the United States. And I think there are few places that are as well suited for this conversation as Monticello. Um, You know, Monticello being home to Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, but also being a working plantation, um, Mm -hmm. showing those contradictory ideas of freedom and slavery, or maybe they're co-constituted ideas of freedom and slavery, right? Maybe you can't have one without the other. And that's that's a conversation, a reckoning that I think our country needs And I hope that people continue to support Monticello in this work as they lean into those difficult conversations. Yeah, I mean, those are all excellent points. And I agree, we are at a very 
a dangerous, precarious time here with democracy. And I think that one of the things that I like about going to places like Monticello also comes to mind is Mount Pillar, of course, down the road, is that you get to, you discuss this difficult, difficult air quotes, history, um, and you get to have a dialogue because like you said, you don't choose who is on the tour with you, right? Um, when you purchase that ticket. And so I want to ask you about your role as a public historian and describe for me exactly what that means and how is it different than other historians? I think I kind of know, but for the listeners, it would be great if you could explain that. (laughs) I'm glad you know, because I still don't (laughs) quite think I have my fingers on it. Um, Certainly when I started Monticello, I had one view of what public history was. And for me, public history, when I started working at Monticello, Uh, was museums. It was public-facing history with people who shared important research with the public. Uh, And I think that was a cute little definition, right? Um, But I don't think that cute little definition really grasps exactly how important uh, and powerful this work is. And so, you know, if if I had the latitude to speculate on a wider definition of public history, Um, I would say that it is public informed scholarship, that it is Mm. academically rigorous work um, that expands the possibility of the archive and allows different voices to be foregrounded than with traditional historical approaches to the same materials. Uh, Mm. And so I think there are many scholars who have written about this, of course, uh, Ralph Trio's book, Silencing the Past is one of the best examples um, Mm. of this conversation, right? But often the practice of academic forensic history is one that is predicated upon a certain set of agreed upon conclusions about the past. It is Mm. agreed upon historiographies and familiar source documents, uh, Mm -hmm. which is all well and good, but many people are left out of those traditional approaches. And that tends to be women, enslaved people, people of color globally, people from the global South, as we imagine it. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so I think the role of a public historian uh, is someone who thinks beyond those archival limitations uh, and is able to work with different types of sources um, like oral histories and genealogy. to fill some of those gaps that are formed by more traditional approaches to doing history. Uh, and that's mm. why I continue to do it because it's, it's, it's filling a need uh, in the community mm. to uplift stories we haven't heard yet. Um, but also right. it enables us to color a better version of the history we already have heard from. Right. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you visited Monticello 30 years ago, you would have got, gotten a really great tour about the architecture, the original features of the house, uh, Thomas Jefferson as a great man, uh, Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson as author of the Declaration of Independence, uh, as a founding father. You know, it would have been a really exceptional history, but it's an incomplete history, uh, mm-hmm. one that needed the voices of descendants of the enslaved communities uh, to be a, a better, fuller version of what actually occurred here. Because those descendants, their stories um, and their ancestors were not captured 
their experiences were not captured fully in those traditional archival sources. And so that is the work that public history does. It, it bridges the gap uh, between what is there in the traditional archive and what can be captured in uh, the Black experience and Black oral history tradition. That's cool. I mean, wow, I really like that definition. I think you, I think you kind of know what it is. I mean, that seems like I, I'm like, oh, that sounds great. I should do that. Um, I mean, I'm like, that sounds fun. Um, but I want to switch gears a little bit because you have a degree in architecture. Is that correct? Architectural history. Yeah. Yes. So how does that help you with what you do today? Um, because I've always loved architecture and all of that. So I just, I find that fascinating, but uh, working at Monticello and other things that you've done in your career, how does that, do you use that degree today? Um, and moving forward with what you're doing at Princeton, we'll get to that in a moment, but. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, as I just mentioned, traditional historians are very linear in their thinking. They're often focused on issues of causation um, and there is a very teleological approach to looking at the past, that one thing built upon another, built upon another, which I think is one way of doing history. Um, but I think architects and designers in particular have a different way of approaching problems um, from multiple angles at the same time. And so I think my training as an architectural historian, someone who's been uh, trained to read the built environment and to think mm -hmm. spatially, uh, has been tremendously helpful in my work uh, with the descendant community at Monticello. I mean, even thinking through the dispersal of these families. So, you know, as you and I both know, Thomas Jefferson uh, is credited with being a great farmer, uh, but he was never financially successful. And at his death, um, the enslaved community was the bulk of the remaining value in his estate. And so in order to try to save the property, Jefferson's descendants, uh, his grandchildren, his daughters, they sold the remaining enslaved people from dispersal sales in 1827 and 1829, which sent these families all throughout the country. Uh, many of them were purchased by faculty and professors at the University of Virginia. Some were purchased by Jefferson's family and friends. Uh, some ended up even further away, farther away from Monticello, right? They end up all over the country. And so in doing this work to reconnect with those families and to re reconnect descendants with each other, um, we've had to think in a very non-linear way about uh, how to connect with these families, right? They're not here. We had to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, to, to get to these families, to collect those oral histories, to bring them back to Monticello. And I think what, we, what I started to realize at least uh, and my thinking about these families is that, you know, you can look at these families' names on paper and you can look at their family trees and see how they're related. But until you map them, until you put those families in community with each other in space, like literally pins on a map, uh, I don't think it, is, it was even possible for us to start reconnecting the pieces. And so looking for enslaved people whose lives are uh, documented in property records, in um, court cases, in wills, and other sorts of property sources, right? That spatial element has been extremely critical in reconnecting some of these family trees and figuring out exactly who's related and how. Um, we find that enslaved people from the Monticello community end up living in other plantations that are next to each other, that families mm -hmm 
their family connections align based on properties along the same waterways, right? Like the James River and the Rivanna River have been tremendously important in reconstructing uh, the genealogies of these families. And so I think my background as an architectural historian has really helped me think outside the box and find other ways to recover uh, information that we previously thought was lost about these enslaved families. And as you were talking, I mean, it struck me as I asked a question, but I was thinking, oh my God, this totally makes sense. Like, I was like, why do you even ask that question? Because it makes sense that you would give it your background in with public history. Of course, these go together, right? I mean, it just seems logical now, and especially after your explanation. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into, um, I did download it, but I did not read it because it's like 170 pages. But your master's thesis from, from 2015, I believe, and it's called uh, Blurred Lines, African-American Community, Memory, and Preservation in the Southwest Mountains Rural District um, from UVA. And there's two things I want to talk about um, or themes or points I want to touch on. One is uh, you focus on the history of the first African-Americans in the Southwest Rural Historic District before 1865 and plantations and free Black settlements. So that's kind of discuss that. And then you analyze the African-American communities in post-war reconstruction until the 1960s or mid to late 1960s. So let's first start with the kind of the first African-Americans um, before 1865 plantations and the free black settlements, and then kind of get into the community post-reconstruction. Yeah, I started with those families because it is my family's story. Um, mm. you know, I was looking at the my grandparents' house, uh, my dad's parents' house in Albemarle County. Um, and as a graduate student in historic preservation uh, and architectural history at UVA, uh, I started being really interested in the history of this community. I mean, I always had the interest, right? I mentioned walking these roads with my grandmother, learning about the pathways they took to class, um, hearing her talking about those sorts of uh, intangible traditions that are often not preserved within our communities. You know, you mentioned that a lot of people associate their experiences in Jim Crow with pain and with um, other feelings of, you know, doubt and despair. And so they often often don't want to share those experiences. And so I really started there uh, looking at why this community was not part of the rural historic district. Uh, The Southwest Mm -hmm. Mountains Rural Historic District was created in the late 1980s, early 1990s, officially listed in 1992 uh, to the Virginia State Register of Historic Places and then to the National Register of Historic Places in 1993. So as I was learning about these landmark policies of the 1960s, I started to wonder why 30 years later, um, even though they were supposed to be applied to save vulnerable resources, why they were still leaving out Black communities. Like, how was it Mm. that this historic Black community uh, wasn't included? And so at the outset of the project, I set out to tell a story um, from, as I saw it, the genesis of this community known as Scuffletown, uh, which is my grandparents' community, um, through the end of sort of the peak period, um, which is the, the 1950s, when Um, Black families start to move away from this area uh, because of a lack of professional and personal opportunities. And so uh, I started with that history of the earliest families to arrive in this area because these land patents in the mid-1750s, so from the the mid-1750s and 1760s forward, Albemarle becomes the western 
frontier of British settlement uh, in Virginia. And, you know, even prior to this area becoming part of the United States, prior to this country existing, there are already families claiming land patents uh, from the King of England, right? And I was like, well, this is the Monacan nation. Like, we are not even 20 miles from the capital of the Monacan nation here at Rossowek is literally the next county over. Uh, and so I started thinking about, you know, this, this colonial history of occupation, um, but also learning about some of the settlement patterns that these planter families who came to Albemarle County were already established in counties east of here. They were Tidewater tobacco families that were explain, ex, expanding, excuse me, um, their plantation holdings. And so they would send enslaved people here to occupy those spaces prior to building their new big houses. And so the first people to settle this land, either under the name of the British crown or as part of these expanded plantation holdings after uh, after 1776 are usually African-American people. These are Black people born to enslaved families in the Tidewater region. Uh, many of them are no longer uh, tied or connected to communities in West Africa. They are several generations removed from that experience, and yet they are the first Black people here in Albemarle County, uh, and they are the first permanent residents of these new plantations. And so I started thinking about those first Black families who came here and established these plantation holdings and how those histories were not at all mentioned in the rural historic district. So while all of the plantations that they're responsible for building, spaces that are referred to as farms in this nominating document, uh, where you can go and read about the history of the Southwest Mountains, uh, the mention of the contribution of these enslaved people is very minimal. And so I started there tracing the origins of uh, the Black community here in Albemarle, uh, looking at their expansion uh, up until 1865, and then looking at what those first few decades of freedom were like as they built their own kind of self-determined autonomous communities. Uh, so no longer on the plantations, they are down these smaller country roads, and they've established uh, what I called in my thesis, uh, Black settlements or Black villages. Uh, what mm. other scholars like Andrea Roberts will call a freedom colony. Uh, so I was mm. really looking at this Black autonomous experience of establishing a neighborhood, of establishing space. Uh, and I wanted to know what we were doing differently here, whether they were more insular than other communities, whether you know they were using different architectural styles, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, I had some really naive questions, I think, at the beginning of that process, but it really turned into... Um, a document that has had waves in the preservation community, because in it, I start to ask a lot of questions about what, what we as architectural historians do with history that is intangible. How do we deal with ritualized uses of spaces like Black church homecomings and family reunions? What do we do about the, the walk my grandma took to school? Like, how is that pathway captured in our historic districts? Mm -hmm. What are we doing as a field and a profession to uh, either create new criteria for recognizing these intangible resources or training people um, who are going to be professionals, who are going to be architectural historians, your surveyors and other people responsible for putting together a historic district. How do we train them to see what is not visible uh, in the absence of a community oral history tradition, right? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. 
So that's where that project went. And so I, I had to start way back in the 1760s uh, to get there because, <laughs> you know, I wanted every little bit of the Black history that I could capture, which is why that master's thesis turned out being dissertation length. <laughs> so I'm hoping yeah. not to repeat that <laughs> in writing a dissertation because I don't know that anyone wants to read, you know, the the 300 page version of that same story. <laughs> I mean, it looked very, I did, I mean, I did skim, it looked very interesting. And I mean, my family is from Central. I mean, we we weren't in Orange, but definitely Culpepper, Madison, and then my third great-grandfather is Albemarle, which I don't know any of his uh, siblings, even though he's a Sellers, and I know there are a bunch of Sellers that are in Charlottesville, but I'm not sure if I'm related to them or not. Still working on that, because I don't have time to do my own genealogy, but that's another story. Because, um, yeah. That would be fantastic if I did. I mean, I will, I, but I definitely will read it because it's part of my area, right? And, you know, where my my family is from. But uh, I want to get to sort of what you're doing now. So you're uh, studying for a PhD in history at Princeton and you're in the African-American studies department. So uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of what's next with you and kind of what are your career goals and ambitions related to uh, getting your doctorate or your PhD in history? Yeah. You know, I think that all of the work that I've been privileged to do over the past five or six years at Monticello, at uh, Montpelier, uh, working independently with some of these historic Black communities has really guided me to this moment uh, on my journey towards achieving and realizing the dream of becoming a doctor and having a PhD. Um, Certainly, a lot of the research that I'm interested in continuing moving forward is related to Black spaces, especially Black rural spaces. I'm really dedicated to talking about our people who uh, acquired property in rural space and then retained it. And I think so often the narrative is about Black land loss. Uh, So I'm hoping with my dissertation project to look at the 19th century and look at marinage and traditions of Uh, freedom seeking among African descendant populations in the new world. So uh, in the Americas, uh, thinking about the Caribbean, uh, Brazil, and what we understand about free black communities that were established there. Of course, Mm -hmm. people speak about those spaces under very specific terms that, uh, you know, these maroon colonies represented a very specific threat to the system of slavery, uh, that they become a spatial form that is easily recognizable Um, but they are distinctly urban, that they are characterized by systems of slavery that had Black majority populations that were on much more restricted geographies. And so there's a really defined literature about those spaces. And what I'm hoping to do in my project is to look at the opposite end of that. Um, You know, how Mm -hmm. do we characterize marinage in the Upper South, where there is not always a Black majority population? where there's not always a Black majority population, right? So I'm I'm looking at how we characterize marinage and freedom struggles uh, over a wider, diffuse landscape. And for me, the best way of entering that story is through the Underground Railroad. So my dissertation project seeks to look at marinage as it is expressed in the Underground Railroad uh, between Virginia and Ohio, Uh, looking Mm -hmm. at the role of Black rural communities as sites of freedom, but also sites of resistance, so that these nodes become their own kind of towns and spaces that are dedicated to eradicating slavery, that are dedicated to Black radical politics, 
uh, and that have their own architectural form. And so uh, that is that is a history that I'm working on presently. Uh, of course, I'm also still working with some rural communities here uh, in Virginia. So I'm, I'm working very closely with a group called the AMMD Pine Grove Project in Cumberland, Virginia. Uh, they're currently fighting an environmental justice battle against the imposing threat of a mega landfill uh, that is threatening to destroy graves of enslaved communities in Cumberland, um, but would also compromise uh, the community surrounding a historic Rosenwald school. And so uh, I remain interested in the built environment and looking at architectural history, looking at Black spaces, but now I'm also interested in these larger questions of Black freedom, Black identity, uh, as they're expressed over, uh, you know, much wider landscapes uh, in the Americas and, you know, just connecting that Black radical politics with the rest of the world. Because I think so often people look at country Black people in particular and they say, well, there's nothing going on there. But I'm like, these communities were really, really strong, right? right. These communities yeah. resisted yeah. slavery. They fought for civil rights, justice. Uh, they used the court systems just as effectively to challenge uh, Black codes in Virginia and Ohio. And so these are really powerful places. And uh, I think we have to do a little bit more work to see uh, what is actually happening in uh, Black rural America. Mm-hmm. And I just love what you're saying about this because I, as I'm smiling <laughs> because I'm thinking, yeah, that's what I thought when I started doing my genealogy. I was like, look, my folks from the country somewhere, they really didn't do a lot. Let me go somebody else in the family or my boyfriend's family. But you're right. Um, I mean, they have a story to, to share, to tell, and that should be discovered. And they were, you know, they were fighting the battles just as fiercely as those that might've been in urban areas. So a just kind of this question just popped in my mind, sort of for those who are listening, um, what would you recommend for them to how to get involved? Like, I appreciate you getting involved with Cumberland. You mentioned that community and in uh, the uh, gravesite or the formerly enslaved. But if someone else has that type of situation or, um, you know, or in their local community or either where their their family was from, how can they actually help to preserve these spaces and kind of fight these battles of development that threaten our history? And, and and threaten the physical location of people who passed on. Right. You know, if I'm speaking to other young Black people like myself, um, my advice is to seek out those conversations with the elders. I think uh, technology has done a lot for us and it has enabled us to be exposed to a lot of new things, but it has also distracted us from conversations that used to happen a lot more organically. Um, listening to grandma talk about her house, listening to your aunts and uncles talk about what it was like for them growing up and going to segregated schools. Uh, so I think we're losing a bit of that uh, fabric that has held together generations of Black people. And so I'm calling on other young people like myself, other young Black people to lean in and pick up your cell phone and go use it for something other than scrolling on Twitter and Instagram, right? Pick that phone up, open that voice recorder app, and go sit down with somebody in your family and ask them questions. They don't even have to be hard questions, right? I think so often we get hung up in the research and historian community about having exactly the right equipment, uh, exactly the right mm. training. And none of that really matters, right? Like some of the best work I did was as an eight-year-old listening to my grandmother speak. And I would have never realized that now, uh, until now, right? And so I, I really encourage people to take your cell phone and go talk to the older people, right? Because they have 
invaluable knowledge that once it's gone, it's gone. And so mm-hmm. uh, you need to go ask people the simple questions like, what were your parents' names? What were your grandparents' names? Where did they live? What did that house look like? Can you walk me through it? Like the simple mm-hmm. questions that get people talking about their experience of a place, because that essence, that spirit uh, is the hardest part of an oral history to capture. And so uh, I really want people to do what they can uh, to capture those oral histories from the elders. And then I would say from a research standpoint, you know, look around your community and see what's going on, right? I would have never come across the Pine Grove um, project out in Cumberland, Virginia, uh, if I hadn't been slightly interested in environmental justice battles that were happening throughout the state. Mm. And so uh, they are on the verge of being the second Black rural historic district in the state of Virginia, which would be a tremendous feat. Um, and would also show the growth of the field that we're even considering a second Black rural historic district um, that is based around so many um, tangible assets, things that are still on the landscape, but also those intangible uh, traditions that are hard to capture. And so I just hope that people look around their communities, look at those small historical societies, the churches, uh, schools that may not be be in use anymore, but that uh, you know may have been the segregated schools that existed under Jim Crow uh, and see what they need. See if there's any, uh, if there are any records of those places, see if they've been documented, see if they've been added to your state and historical, uh, your state historical registers and national registers of historic places. Just see if that history is captured because if it's not, the most impactful thing you can do is to pick up your phone and open that voice app and record an oral history. It's really the easiest thing to do. And so that's what I encourage everybody to get out there. Uh, get out there and capture your own histories. Great. I appreciate that. And I know firsthand because my great grandmother died at 104 before I started doing genealogy. And it's the one branch of my family that I know the least about because I didn't ask any questions. So um, I appreciate your advice and hopefully folks will take action. That's their your call to action from the podcast in this episode is to record oral histories. Um, and I have one last question for you. Um, since you are working on your dissertation, are you going to write a book? Because it's, I tend to, it seems like most people, not most, but a lot of folks that I have their books, most of them were like their dissertation and then they turned it into a book. So is that something you're looking to do uh, in the near future or interested in doing it all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have to write the dissertation. So I hope the natural next step for that thing is that it goes out into the world and has a life of its own since it's sucking all the life that I currently have. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, yeah, I do think I'll write a book in the future. Um, I have an article that is going to be out uh, next year in 2023 as part of a collection with Dumbarton Oaks. Um, That chapter is about uh, some of these Monticello families. So it's called Black Space uh, at Monticello. Um, That chapter really talks about the... um, post Thomas Jefferson era at Monticello and what that looked like for black families. And so, um, and also roots uh, connects those families to uh, the tradition of preservation. Uh, So I I, I hope that people check that chapter out when it's out and hopefully in the next three to four, five years, (laughs) there might be uh, another book with my name on it. (laughs) I could talk to you for hours and I'm not kidding because I just really enjoy our conversation. I've, I've learned so much from this conversation that I didn't know. And I, I appreciate you talking about Monticello post Thomas Jefferson, because I think a lot of times we just focus on Thomas Jefferson and we don't think about the enslaved 
you know, after his death and what happened to them. And so um, that to me means that I need to study that a little bit more as well, just in my, for general knowledge and research. Um, but I just enjoyed all your, your involvement and everything you're doing. You made me excited about being a public historian, which that's fantastic. Uh, not Great. that I'm going to school. I'm not trying to get it. I'm not getting a PhD. That's not going to happen. I already got a law degree. I'm done with school. But, but you did inspire me for sure. So I really appreciate you being on Conversation with Kenyatta. And definitely, as you continue to work and do more things in your community, I will want to have you back for an update on what's going on in Cumberland, as well as when your chapter comes out next year. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I really look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Maybe when I have a book with my name on it. (laughs) That too. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle kenyatta.berry on Facebook at facebook.com slash KenyattaDB, and on Twitter at KenyattaDB. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at KenyattaBerry.com. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests on Conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Berry.